like to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. As I try to say every week, if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. You can follow along on the the screen behind me. We've been studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians for some time now, since the beginning of the year, and I'm, I, for one, am really thankful that we're taking our time going through it. Um, there's something good about reading and preaching long sections of Scripture, uh, but when you've got a book like Ephesians, it is good for our souls to slow down, particularly those of us who are very familiar with some of these words, some of these truths, and really think about what is God saying here. I'm grateful we get to do that again this morning. Uh, Before I read, beginning in verse 14, I want you to consider a little scenario with me, and um, if you'll grant me a little bit of leeway here, this scenario is one that um, in some ways requires a bit of experience in Christian circles. So, track with me here, but if you don't have experience in Christian circles, if you don't even have a lot of Christian friends, maybe it's your first time in a a Christian meeting of some kind, um, hang with me and see if you can relate to some of this. I think it's an all too familiar feeling in the church. One person prays, and then there's silence. Another person prays, a little more silence. A third person prays, and then the circle gets really quiet. Your eyes are closed. One of them is partly open. Is anybody else going to pray? One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand. And then panic strikes because you realize everybody's prayed but me. And that must mean that every other Christian in this circle is being quiet with their eyes closed and they're not thinking about Jesus. All they're thinking about is when is Williams going to open his mouth and say something? But after what feels like an eternity, the fearless group leader finally starts talking and you go, moment over. Mission accomplished. I didn't have to pray this time. I won't, I'm tempted to, but I won't ask you to raise your hand if if you can identify with that situation, with being in a context, some of you are raising your hands great, being humble, where, where you're listening to people, Christians, around you, and as you're listening to them, it just sounds so spiritual and godly and put together And you know that if you open your mouth, at least in your own mind, what you think may or come out, if it comes out at all, certainly isn't going to make sense to God and probably won't make any sense to anybody else who's listening. Therefore, why open your mouth? So you stay quiet. I don't know how many of you can identify with that situation or those emotions. Maybe maybe you're not a Christian and... You've been in 
meetings or churches or parts of a service and suddenly like everybody's doing something or you know the guy next to you were singing and out of nowhere he's like hands in the air and you whoa you try not to look but you're thinking this is so weird you know, all of us on some level can relate to feeling like there are things going on around us in a christian meeting that may or may not make sense or that we may or may not be particularly comfortable with I think that's particularly true when it comes to prayer. And I would argue, friends, that that's the case. Those circles, small group environments happen. We feel those things because none of us are born knowing how to pray. You know, just like my little boys have to learn how to talk to one another, to us, you know, at a certain point, it's like, well, wish they could unlearn a little bit of that, you know. Can we go back and be quiet now? We have to learn how to talk to God. It's a learned skill. And so regardless of your experience praying, your comfort level praying, the Lord has a word of exhortation, encouragement, and instruction for you this morning. And I believe it's found in Paul's words to the Ephesians beginning in Ephesians 3, verse 14. We're going to read one of Paul's prayers for the Ephesians. And after we read it, we're going to ask two very simple questions of this prayer. Okay? Question one, why do we pray? And question two, what do we pray? Okay, so we're going to look at Paul's prayer, listen to it, let it be our prayer, and then learn from his example by asking Paul, why are you praying? And thus, why should I pray? And Paul, what are you praying? And thus, what should I pray? And the goal of this, praise God for this, friends, is to allow the Word of God to teach us to pray. Because none of us are born knowing how to do it, but God is eager to show us. He's eager to show us. Okay, so let's, let's read the Word of the Lord. Listen along as I read it, beginning in Ephesians 3.14. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly, And all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. For and ever and ever. Amen. Father, I ask today. I ask that you would answer the request that your servant Paul made of you. Over 2,000 years ago. And that, Father, we make of you. Again, today, in response 
to your purpose with confidence in your authority, we pray that you would give us power for godliness through your spirit and a deeper knowledge of your love for us in Christ. All for the sake of your glory. Lord, we bring these requests to you. I ask for your help, Father, to faithfully preach your word. In the name of our Savior Jesus, in whom all your promises are yes and amen. We thank you for listening to us according to your word, and we praise you for answering us according to your word. We love being your kids. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So two questions. Why do we pray? What do we pray? Why and what? So let's start with the why. Why do we pray? Well, the introduction to Paul's prayer in verse 14, very first verse I read, could not be more critical. I want to remind you that there are no wasted words in the Bible. There, there are no filler words. There, there wasn't an editor who said, you've got to reach this many words, or a teacher said, saying to Paul, it better be 4,000 words, so like, Jesus, God, Bible, how can I fill this up? No, that's not what happens in Scripture. Paul doesn't waste words, and so we need to notice every word, in particular, the very first phrase of chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. I pray. For this reason. Well, that's a reference you've been following in our series all the way back to chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says the very same thing, except in chapter 3, verse 1, he interrupted himself. Some of you know I'm good at that. You start one sentence and boom, you're off on another topic. Well, Paul did that. He did that. He took a break to talk about the source and purpose of his apostolic ministry. But in 3.14, he picks up where he left off in 3.1 with the phrase, for this reason. So what's, what's the reason, Paul? What does the this refer to? Well, it refers back to everything Paul has finished saying in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. That's what it refers to. That's the this. Especially what he said at the very end of chapter 2. Namely, that the Ephesians are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, okay, this is the first answer to the question, why do we pray? We pray because we are confident in the Father's purpose. Paul was confident in the Father's purpose. Why do we pray? Because we can be confident in the Father's purpose. The foundation of biblical prayer, friends, is not the needs of man, but the purposes of God. Okay, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean, please hear me here, that we have to begin praying by rehearsing all of God's purposes like some sort of, you know, necessary preamble, just sound official and spiritual. No, okay? Plenty of prayers in Scripture jump right into our needs out of the gate, bringing requests to the Father. That's okay. But the need to pray confident in the Father's purpose means, like Paul did for Paul, that our prayers should always be informed by God's purposes and in accordance with God's purposes. 
And if you want to discover God's purposes and understand God's purposes so you can pray in accordance with God's purposes, then look no further than the word of God where he reveals his purposes. So what does God tell us in Ephesians 1 and 2 about his purposes? Well, he says, if you're a Christian, just listen to this. He says that he chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. He loved you when you were spiritually dead to God, enslaved to the passions of your flesh. He made you alive with Christ. He adopted you as his sons and daughters in accordance with his great love and to the praise of his glorious grace. And he is right now on a divine mission to unite all things in Christ by reconciling us to God and reconciling us to one another. And despite all our sins and all our weaknesses, God continues to proclaim the power of his salvation through the testimony of our relationships. He's building unity in the church, unity in our church, in this age, as a testimony to the world of the unity of all things in the age to come. We are God's chosen means, as it were, of Him making His glory known in the universe. That is what God is up to in the world. That's God's purpose. And the fact that 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 was God's purpose for the Ephesians... God's purpose for us, that gave Paul confidence to pray. He could pray for the Ephesians because God had a purpose for the Ephesians. That's the first answer to the question, why do we pray? Because we're confident in the Father's purpose. But here's the second, why do we pray? Because we're confident in the Father's authority. Confident in the Father's purpose, confident in the Father's authority. Look at verse 15. No wasted words in Scripture. Verse 15 Paul identifies the Father as the one whom what? From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What does that mean? When the ancient Near East, very little different in our culture today, to name something was an expression of authority over that which you were naming. If you were entrusted with responsibility to name something, it meant that you had authority over something. If I have a right to name you, you have a responsibility to submit to me. And that's why it's so significant that in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, who names Adam? God. But then what does Adam name? All the animals. Then later his wife, Eve. So when Paul says that all things come from the Father and are named by the Father... He's saying that every person in heaven and on earth is created by God and lives under the authority of God. That's what's up with that verse. Which means whether we realize it or not, all of us come from him and are right now being governed by him. We come from him, we're governed by him. And that, friends, has serious implications for prayer. Why? Because it tells us that God doesn't just have a purpose for us, a purpose in the world. God has the authority to get it done. 
He has a purpose, confident in his purpose, and he has authority. We're confident in his authority. So when you combine confidence in the Father's purpose, for this reason, with confidence in the Father's authority, he's named everything that could be named. What does Paul get? A great big motivation to pray. Follow that? If you're confident in God's purpose... There's a God in heaven. He has a sovereign purpose. And you know that that God who has a sovereign purpose also has complete authority over everything in creation. What do you get? What does Paul get? A great big incentive to pray. That's why we pray. We're confident in the Father's purpose. We're confident in the Father's authority. Now here's the second question. What do we pray? What do we pray? Well, Paul makes a lot of requests in here. And trust me, I spent a fair bit of time this week trying to figure out how many points is this sermon going to have. But we're going to pull all this under two headings. Two requests that Paul makes of God. And as he brings these requests to God on behalf of the Ephesians, he teaches us what to pray. So here's the first thing. Okay, what do we pray? What do we need to pray? We need to pray for the power of God's Spirit. We need to pray for the power of God's Spirit. Paul's, Paul's first request, right out of the gate, is that the Ephesians would be strengthened with power. And a power, Paul says, that comes by a particular means by the Spirit of God. So think about this. One of the essential attributes of God is that he is omnipresent. Besides that being a really big word that sounds like something Christians say to confuse people, what is that telling us? Well, to say God is omnipresent simply means that wherever you go, at all times, in all places, surprise, God is there. He's everywhere present. That's true. There's nowhere you can go this week where God isn't present. That has implications. But at the same time, Scripture tells us that there are places where God is present in a, in a pronounced way or with a specific purpose in view. So he's everywhere present, but he's not present everywhere in the same way or in the same sense or doing the same things. And if you're a Christian, which, by the way, is not just something that happens because you go to church, but by trusting Jesus to save you, then you are one of those places. You are one of those places where God is present in a unique way with a unique goal in mind. Jesus says in John 14, look at this with me, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Praise God he gives us a helper. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he what? He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. Why? Because he was going to send into heaven. But you will see me. 
because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. If anyone loves me, verse 23, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Then notice this. And we will come to him and make our home with him. What does that tell us, friends? It tells us that if you're a Christian, God is uniquely present in a very personal way in your heart, in your inner man. If you're a Christian, Jesus says that the Father and the Son have literally taken up residence, camped out inside of you. And there is not a maximum number of nights that they can stay. And all this, Paul says, happens as a result of the Spirit's activity occurring in our inner being. Now, that's not a location that we're used to talking about or thinking about because we live in a culture, do we not, that pays almost exclusive attention to the outer man. That I would argue idolizes, worships, bows down, dedicates trillions of dollars to maintaining our physical health to the sad neglect of our soul. That's the culture that we live in. Several years ago when I was training for the Richmond Marathon, some of the young people have heard me share this before, I, I wrote 1 Timothy 4, 7-8 to on the top of my training log, which says, Train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for what, Willie? For godliness. Why? For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Why did I write that? on my marathon training law. Because as a younger man, I know that I am susceptible to living under the illusion that my outer man, my physical body, is where it's at. I'm invincible. What I'm not going to do here is now start making jokes about what happens (laughs) when you get older. And the reason I'm not friends is that if you, like I have in recent years, watched people that you love grow old and even die, it's not something you want to joke about. Because it's sobering. And because it makes me realize that that Paul was right when he warned us in 2 Corinthians 4, that the outer self is wasting away. Those of you who are near death know this. Those of us who might not be, as far as we know, must remember this. Our outer self, what, what you can see about me, what I can see about you right now, God says, Experience proves 
It's wasting away. You, you can spend thousands, even millions of dollars. Global economy, 2013, we spent $3.4 trillion on health and wellness. You can do that in a desperate attempt to preserve your physical health. But one day, you and I are going to die. Your physical body will die. Your outer man will die. But on that day, friend, your inner man will be very much alive. Your physical body is temporal. But your soul is eternal. And it's the condition of your soul, your inner man, that will determine your eternal destiny. Romans 2. God will render to each one according to his work. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. What, what should that prompt us to do, friends? Well, that should compel you to recognize that, that God delights to meet our physical needs. We should spend time praying about such needs. Jesus cared for physical needs, but our spiritual needs are far more important. Far more important. And we should spend way more time praying about those things. So look again at what Paul asked God to do in his inner man. In verse 16, he says, May God grant you to be what? Strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Please notice, please notice, Paul is not asking God to strengthen us with power so that we can suffer less. Paul is not asking God to strengthen us with power so that we can feel like we're 22. Paul is asking God to strengthen us with power so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, when we hear that, when I read that, I think, hold on a minute. Because I thought that when you become a Christian, that God literally takes up residence inside of you. And the people Paul's writing to, the Ephesians, they're Christians. So why on earth would Paul ask God to do something if he's already done it? You, you tracking? Why, why pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith if the moment they were saved back in time and became a Christian, God took up residence inside of them? Like, are you just like, please don't stop? I mean, why are you asking for that, Paul? Well, I think an illustration can help. At least it helps me. See if it helps you. When, when my wife and I bought our first home, there was a sense in which it immediately became our home. Okay, from that first night onward, it's, it's been the place where we have dwelled as a family. But three and a half years after our move, a lot of things have changed. Praise be to God. <laughs> There's paint on the walls. All the windows have been replaced. Bathrooms have been renovated. Carpet's been installed. Landscaping's been overhauled. Front porch has been redone. The driveway's been sealed. I mean, I could just 
I could go on. And every one of those projects did something by way of an upgrade or a remodel. It transformed our house year by year, still going on, into more and more of the Williams home. Right? So it was our home legally day one. We did dwell there. But experientially, it's become more and more and more of our home the more work we've done. The more renovation has taken place. The more remodeling we've done. Well, friends, I think that's a picture of the Christian life. And the reason Paul prays for more of God's power in the Ephesians The reason we need the power of God's Spirit is so that the Spirit of God would transform us day by day into the image of God's Son. So to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner man is for Christ to dwell in our hearts such that year by year we become more like Him through the power of God's Spirit, the working of God's Spirit, And more and more, we become His home. He's not more present. It's not as if the first year you're a Christian, He's got a toe in the door. And the next year, it's like, hand, then side. No, okay? The moment you're saved, the Holy Spirit fills your life and your inner man, and you become a child of God. Praise God for that. God will have none of this. We earn His presence through our works. And yet, experientially, over the years, as we mature, as we grow into the, what does Paul say? The fullness of God. More and more of His image is reflected in our words, our thoughts, our actions. We become, experientially, more and more the home of Christ. He makes our hearts his home, once he takes up residence inside. And that, friends, what I've just described, could be summed up in this phrase. We need the Spirit of God to become more like God. That's his point. If you want to become more like God, if you want your home, your heart, your inner man to increasingly resemble who God is, then you need something. You need the power of the Spirit of God. And that is the most important thing we can pray for, that God would grant us His Spirit's power so that we could, as it were, become what we already are, a holy dwelling place for God. And so I want to invite you this morning to ask God to search your heart. Because one of the temptations that we are vulnerable to, friends, is spending far more time praying, asking God, to bring comfort to our outer man, to our bank accounts, to our bodies, to our families, than we do spending time on our knees praying for God to bring holiness to our inner man. What, what, what do you pray for more? Comfort, ease, and convenience for your outer man or holiness for your inner man? We need to pray for the power of God's Spirit. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. I told you there were two things. What do we pray? We pray for the power of God's Spirit. Here's the second. 
we pray for the knowledge of God's love. Power of God's spirit, the knowledge of God's love. Now, in saying that and in reading Paul's prayer here, particularly when he gets to verse 19, to know the love of Christ, I'm a bit surprised. I'll tell you why. Because what I would expect Paul to pray for is, Lord, I pray that the Ephesians would love you more. Right? I mean, how, how many times have you heard that or thought that or heard a Christian religious help us to love you more? That is not what Paul prays here. What, what does he pray? He doesn't pray that their love for God would increase. He prays that their understanding of God's love for them would increase. Following? Okay, verse 18. May you have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. That surpasses knowledge. So why, why would Paul pray for that? Why, why is it so important that the Ephesians, that you and I, grow in our experiential awareness of Jesus' love for us? Why is that such a big deal? Well, I think it's because Paul knows something that's profoundly important. Please hear this. Paul knows that it's through grasping the greatness of God's love for us that we change. You want to change, Christian? You want to be filled with the fullness of God? You want to look more like your Savior tomorrow than you did today? Well, then here's what Paul says is necessary. Necessary for the Ephesians, necessary for us. We need to grasp the greatness of Christ's love for us. Or as Paul wrote to the Romans... It's God's kindness that leads to repentance, to change. Because when we comprehend, even in part, and consider this, the kind of love that would willingly lay down his life for us, the kind of love that would chase after us when we had absolutely no desire for him, the kind of love that would would suffer the Father's wrath so that we can know the Father's smile, or the kind of love that would would walk this fallen earth and and bear our sins and and carry our sorrows. When, When you comprehend that kind of love, you can't comprehend that, you can't know that, and come away unchanged. It's not possible. Because God's love affects us. It softens us. It 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 melts our hearts and it and it causes us to sing, I mean just wonderful songs. You know, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Wait, wait, where do songs like that come from? They come from a heart that's been melted by the love of God in Christ. They do. We're, we're rooted and grounded in love. He says, and that God's love for us at Calvary is the foundation of our salvation from the guilt of sin and the power of sin. But God's love for us at Calvary, brothers and sisters, is also the means by which we are delivered more and more every day from the ongoing presence of sin. How does God think about this? How does God take a stingy, miserly man and make him generous? He overwhelms him with God's lavish generosity 
in Jesus. How does God take a bitter, angry mom and fill her heart with compassion? Well, he overwhelms that mom with the tender compassion of God in Jesus. How does God take a teenager consumed with what other people think of him? The fear of man. And make you a young person who fears the Lord. He's going to get that done by overwhelming you with this steadfast, unchangeable love and acceptance of God in Jesus so that you are so confident in His approval and His love for you that you could care less what people think. That's how we change. And when Christians writing books and Things online say that change in the Christian life is gospel-centered. That's what they're talking about. That comprehending God's love for us in Christ in every facet of life is ultimately the engine that God uses to transform our hearts. The only way we'll ever be, verse 19, filled with the fullness of God, resembling our Creator, is if day by day we are more amazed, more humbled by, more in awe of, more grateful for, more overwhelmed by the undeserved love of God for us in Christ Jesus. Whereas Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, how, how are we transformed? How are we transformed? Well, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What's the Spirit's job? To reveal the love of Christ to you. So that you can be transformed. When Paul prays, the first request, for more of the Spirit's power, it's not like the Spirit has this sort of see-through box that has power written on it. And we don't know what it is or where it comes from or how it works, but one day it shows up with the FedEx man. You open it, it's like, whoa, I'm a powerful Christian. No. What does the Spirit do? What, what, what is this power Paul speaks of? It's power to comprehend, to really get and grasp and know and understand and be amazed by the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the Spirit's job. All growth in the Christian life comes from the Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives life, the flesh is of no help at all. Being transformed in God's image is a result of beholding God's glory, specifically His love in Christ. Which is why 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. Friends, the entire Christian life, whether or not you are going to mature in faith, hangs on the answer to one question. Are you, day by day, year by year, growing in your amazement and gratitude for God's love for you. If you're not growing in that, I mean, even worse, if you've never had that, or no less dangerous, if you once had it, but do no longer, then you are not going to grow. You're not going to mature. And other people may think you're a Christian, because you show up here on Sundays. But God isn't fooled. God's not fooled. Ask yourself today, do I comprehend the love of God for me in Christ? 
And I warn you, Paul and I are not talking about some sort of mental or intellectual acknowledgement. Why do I say that? Because I'm convinced if you ask the average American, does God love you? What would they all say? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone would say yes. Because we all like to think God loves us and approves of us no matter what we do. Is that biblical? No. No, that is not what God's love is like. God's love is a holy love. It's a costly love, a a sacrificial love. Listen, it's a demanding love, a purifying love, a love you can't experience and come away from unchanged. Okay, that's the kind of knowledge Paul's praying for in verse 19, too, as he says, know the love of Christ isn't to simply be aware of God's love, but to surrender to God's love. To submit to God's love. To allow God's love to take over, as it were, the entire throne and king room of your inner man. In other words, it means to say with the psalmist. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on you in the watches of the night. For you've been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I'm going to sing for joy. That's what knowing God's love looks like. That's what knowing God's love feels like. If you can't say that with a psalmist, then you must grow. And God would have you grow. God will help us grow. God will help me grow. In my knowledge of the love of Christ. And friend, if you answer that question, am I increasingly amazed by God's love for me with some combination of, honestly, Matthew, not really. I'd rather go to the movies. Or, as I said a minute ago, I think I used to, but I'm not anymore. Well, I want to urge you to do two very specific things, very practically. Okay, first, meditate on the gospel. What do I mean by that? The love of God for you in the personal work of Christ. How do I do that? By reading the Bible and reading good Christian books that help us think deeply about God's love for us in Christ. Okay? Secondly, pray. This, this is really simple. This, this should be good news. Okay? We pray before we meditate on the gospel. We pray while we meditate on the gospel. We pray After we meditate, what are we praying? We're praying that God would focus our thoughts and give us strength to comprehend his love for us. So we expose our hearts to the word where God reveals his love. And we call upon God's spirit to take that word and make it alive in our soul. That's what we do. Now I think of it this way. We're never going to understand the love of God for us apart from the activity of God's Spirit in us. Can't separate those. So what do we pray for? 
quick review. We pray. We pray for the power of God's Spirit. Secondly, for the knowledge of God's love. And we do all of that in conclusion so that you and I can become a better me. No. (laughs) No, just checking to see if you're awake. No, we do all of that. We pray for more of God's spirit. We pray for knowledge of God's love so that God could be glorified through our life. Look at at the last couple verses of the prayer. What does Paul pray? This this prayer, notice this. It's radically God-centered. I mean, friends, there's such a risk, there's such a danger here that we would start to think of God as a divine errand boy. And that his cosmic job description is to send a little help here and a little help there whenever we toss a few coins or a few checks in his direction. By the way, there are many people all across the world who preach that. It's called the prosperity gospel. And it's a crying shame. It's not the gospel. Because we don't earn God's favor, do we? No. How deep the Father's love for us because of all I did today. <laughs> no. No. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. I mean, more than I could earn. More than I could buy. More than I could ever pay. And the reason that's the case The reason Paul's prayer is radically God-centered. It's not me-centered, my work-centered, my glory-centered, God-centered. Verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory. Linger there, friend. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. There is a lot I could say at this point, but two very quick observations will suffice. First, take care that you don't long for God's blessing simply so you can be blessed. Long for God's blessing so that God might be glorified through your life. And thank the Lord that in His economy, those two things are the same, two sides of the same coin. Right? That God in pouring out exceedingly good, amazing, more than you could ever ask or imagine, blessing on us as his kids is exactly what glorifies his name. But don't take half the coin and try to cash it. Second, second, praise God. Please hear this. That the extent to which he is exalted in our life and will be exalted in our life is determined not by the measure of our prayers, but by the magnitude of his glory. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that God will not allow the exaltation of his glory to be confined to what we request or even what we can imagine. He won't do that. We serve a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or all we can think. 
And there is encouragement for you in those words. Serious encouragement. Because God's work in our life, in your life, is bigger and greater and deeper than you could ever pray for or you could ever even think to pray for. That's what he's saying. And praise praise God for that, friends. I mean, praise God that there are times when we ask him to do things in us and around us, and to the glory of his name, he answers that exact request and does it. I've got a list of those things. Many of you do. We praise God for that. But you know what else I praise God for? I praise God for those times when I ask him to do something, and he didn't do that, and he did something unbelievably better and far greater than in the moment made absolutely no sense. But as the years go by, you look back and you see that, and you think, Lord, my gracious, I knew exactly what you were doing. And then there are those times when as the years go by, it still makes no sense. And that's when we have a choice to make. Are we going to shake our arrogant fist at the Lord and say, I could do a better job than you? Or are we going to humbly say, with the prophet Isaiah, your ways are not my ways. Thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are greater than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And I worship you for that. And I praise you for that. While I'm crying and my life makes no sense. And by the way, when you do that, guess who gets glory and honor? not your feeble mind (laughs) it's your savior it's your savior it's the god whose ways shatter the borders of our finite comprehension and ensures that our good and his glory will always come to pass but i warn you friend do not let the greatness of god the mystery of his ways allow you to slide into passive prayer. Because as D.A. Carson meditates on the implications of the Lord's promise in verse 20, that he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Listen to what D.A. Carson says. We'll close with this. We simply cannot ask for good things Beyond God's power to give them. You realize that? We can't even imagine good things beyond God's power to give them. Paul's concluding word of praise thus becomes an immensely powerful incentive to pray. And that's what I want us to take a few minutes to do right now. To stop as a church in light of our confidence in the purposes of God, in light of our confidence in the authority of God, to pray for the power of God's Spirit, pray for the knowledge of God's love, that God might be glorified. Let's just take a couple moments to do that quietly in your heart. And then Chris will come lead us.